Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here today. I'd like you to take just a moment, and I want you to get a person in your mind. I want you to start thinking about somebody who's changed your life dramatically. Think right now, someone in your life whom you would point to, a person who has dramatically altered the course of your life. Maybe a parent, spouse, a friend. You know, when I look back on, on my life, I'm not a really old guy, but when I survey the long years behind me, one person does come to mind. My youth pastor, Dan Porter. When I was in junior high and high school, I had an amazing, amazing youth pastor. This man dramatically changed my life. When I think of him, I think of somebody who radically altered the course of my life. I went on to college after high school, and so we, I parted ways with my youth pastor. And over the course of my years at Biola University, uh, my youth pastor, who was then about in his early 40s, maybe mid-40s, he contracted pancreatic cancer. And I went through college knowing that he was more than likely going to die within a short time. And on a retreat with um, this youth group that I was pastoring uh, up in Bellflower, I got a call one day saying that my youth pastor had died of pancreatic cancer. And it was, it was, a, it was an awful moment for me. On the one hand... It was joyous because I knew that Dan was now in the presence of God. And on the other hand, I recognized that I had lost one of my greatest mentors, one of my greatest friends. Fortunately, right before he died, I had the opportunity to, to write him a letter. He got this letter about a month before he passed away, and I wanted to read a portion of it to you. This is uh, dated June 12, 2002, five years ago. And this is just some excerpts from this letter I wrote to my youth pastor. Pastor Dan, after speaking with my mother on the phone a few days ago, I was informed that your health situation seems to be getting worse day by day. I am so grieved. I am so grieved, knowing the Lord may be calling you home soon. But I know God is good. And I know He can see the panoramic view of which we can only see but a glimpse. He knows what lies ahead. And I'm grateful that through it all, He will be glorified. If this letter is the last time I communicate with you, I want you to know how much I love and respect you. As a man, a father, and a pastor, you have been the greatest shepherd in my life. Back in high school, 
I believe I often took for granted how much of an investment you made in me. But now I can see clearly what you did for me and how you pointed me toward the Lord Jesus Christ. I attribute much of my love and fervor for the Lord today to the example that you gave me. I want you to know I've committed my life to full-time ministry largely due to the fact that I want to be more like you. I want to have a life that means something. A life that is full of purpose and joy. I want a life that is devoted to furthering the kingdom of God. God bless you. May His healing hand be upon you. And may He continue to use you mightily until He calls you home. I'll miss you. Love, Neil. One person that dramatically changed the course of my life. We all have a, perhaps a, a person like that. I would hope that we do. But even if we don't, I'm going to tell you today about a person who has a greater impact on me than even Dan did. I want to tell you this morning about a person who, as much as I get choked up recalling what my pastor Dan did for me, there is yet another one in my life who has done even more. Pastor Dan, for me, altered the course of my life. Yet the one that I'm about to speak of is one who alters the course of all of our lives. Dan's death had a rippling effect on many, many people. But the one I'm about to speak to you about has had a rippling effect on the entire world. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was God incarnate. He came to earth, died for our sins, was buried and rose again, conquering sin and death forever. He is the greatest person that's ever walked the face of the earth. And He did it for you. He did it for you. The title of my message is Christ Suffered for You. And I want to bring out today two things which Christ's suffering has done for us. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. And we're going to see two ways in which Jesus Christ's suffering and death has brought us to very amazing things. On the one hand, it has given us an opportunity to have life with God forever. It has secured our eternal destiny back to God. And on the other hand, Christ's suffering has become a pattern. A pattern for us now, here today, to mimic, to emulate, to imitate as we turn to 1 Peter 2, Peter is going to draw out a metaphor. A metaphor of slavery, of all things. And yet he's going to relate it to the suffering of Christ. And he's going to show us how it is an example to us. And how by Christ's suffering, we have the opportunity to be reconciled to God forever. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 
to 25. It's toward the back of your Bibles. After Hebrews or so, prior to Revelation, if you're searching. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18-25. to I want to read it all the way through. And then I want to explain it to all of us. So that we can understand what Peter is clearly trying to teach us. As he is inspired by the Spirit of God. Listen to what it says. Peter says, Servants or slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer... If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. Christ, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously, who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask even now that You would illuminate our eyes. That Your Spirit would show us Your truth. Help us, Lord, to understand the Bible right now. Help us to understand Peter's teaching to us. Let it sink into our hearts. And let this change us, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Notice verse 18 and 19. This is what he says. Servants or slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. Peter starts out with an analogy here. He starts out with a slave-master analogy or a servant-master analogy. Now, we could pause and spend a great deal of time talking about whether or not the Bible speaks about slavery, you know, whether the Bible uh, addresses it as, as, a, as a positive thing in that culture or not. But really, the Bible just deals with slavery as a social institution in and of itself. When Peter and others talk about slavery, what they intend to do is not so much rain down... Uh, criticism on the institution, but rather they want to help those within that institution to live lives that that are commendable before God. And so when Peter here refers to slavery, his purpose is not to attack the institution of slavery. Instead, his purpose is to promote a new life calling into the hearts and minds of those who are serving others in the first century. He also wants to develop in the hearts and minds of those Christians to whom he's writing 
a new and radical lifestyle. And he just happens to be using slavery as an illustration. And what he says to slaves, to servants, he says, be submissive, servants. Be submissive to your masters with all fear. You can also read about this in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3. He says, show fear. In particular, it is most likely that this is fear toward God and thus toward the master. They are to exhibit great reverence toward their Lord and thus to the one who is over them. But he says, not only to the good and to the gentle, which is reasonable, but he says also to the harsh. And see that word harsh in yellow? That word harsh, uh, I want to tell you what it is in the Greek and see if you can get the English word. The Greek word is, take a look, skolios. Anybody English? Medical term? Scoliosis. That's correct. Crooked. Like a crooked spine, he says. This is where we get our English term scoliosis, which is the curvature of the spine in medical terminology. Peter says, even the crooked ones, even the harsh ones, even the ones who are perverse and dishonest, he says, I want you to show reverence toward them. Now, friends, that is a radical thing to say. A a radical thing to say for Peter. He says, why should we do this? He says, this is commendable. Literally, the word grace is there. He says, this is grace. When you show reverence to a harsh master, you are being a gracious person. You are approaching life from a grace-filled approach. It is grace-filled when a person endures grief, suffering, Wrongfully, Peter says, the world does not recognize that suffering wrongfully is commendable, do they? The world around us does not agree that enduring grief wrongfully is an admirable thing to do. Why then are Christians to react differently than the world? Notice what Peter says in verse 19. He says, because of conscience toward God. Because Christians are aware that God expects a lifestyle from them that is distinct from the world. God has given them a higher calling. And I want to speak to you today a little bit about that higher calling. But first, Peter continues to develop his main points here. And he says that patient endurance, patient endurance in the midst of unjust suffering is a grace-filled approach to life. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? He's saying, what does it matter if you do wrong and suffer consequence? This is reminiscent of what Jesus said in Luke 6. Jesus said, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Jesus said, for even sinners love those who love them. Jesus said, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? What credit is it to us if we endure punishment for things we do poorly, things we do wrongly? Peter rhetorically asks, what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? How is it commendable? 
How is it commendable if the suffering is deserved? How is it admirable? When a person commits a crime, when a person commits a crime, and the court finds him guilty of that crime and sends that person to jail, that is just. But that criminal's punishment is not commendable, admirable, or praiseworthy. That criminal is not to be admired for receiving punishment. And so the answer to this question, this rhetorical question, is that there is no credit. There is no credit given to you and to to me when we suffer because of our own account. Because of our own wrongdoing. Because of our own sin. Ah, but there's something that credit is given for. Look at verse the end of verse 20. He says, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Ah, Peter says, but in contrast to what I've just told you at the start of verse 20, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable. Credit accrues to you and to me when we suffer unjustly. Credit accrues to you and to me when we suffer undeservedly. God has favor upon those who suffer and yet are innocent of that suffering, of that persecution, of that hardship. Now, some of you who are perceptive might be asking the question, why would a master punish his slave for doing good? It's a reasonable question, isn't it? Why would a master punish his slave for doing good? On the one hand, we might just say, well, they're just cruel masters. They just do it for the heck of it. But on the other hand, we can speculate here that Peter may have in mind in instances in which slaves might refuse to do immoral tasks, might refuse to do sin, might refuse to do something that would go against God that their master is asking them to do because of conscience toward God. And thus, the master would desire to punish that slave in the first century. Yet God says if that slave does good and yet suffers for it, if that slave refuses to do something immoral, something sinful, and suffers, He says that slave is commended before God. You know, think about the business world. Uh, I spoke with a a friend the other day um, who's in the uh, home loan business. He works for a bank. And he was telling me at we were having a dessert over at their home and he was telling me how he's just grieved because every day he goes to work he sees sin readily at work he sees people forging documents right in front of him he sees people signing documents on behalf of other people and submitting them as a loan application for instance he sees forgery every day he has bosses who request that he falsify information every day. That's his reality. That's the business that he's in. And he's grieved because he knows that on the one hand, if he gives in, he knows that God is going to be displeased. He knows that on the one hand, if he gives in, 
and submit some of these applications that he knows are false. He might make some more money in the end, but ultimately God is going to be displeased with him. And yet on the other hand, he knows that if he doesn't do this, he is going to suffer for doing good. He might lose a promotion. He might lose his job because he will lack in productivity in that business office. This is real, friends. This is not just a a metaphor in the first century about slaves. This happens every day. You have a choice in the business world, at home, wherever you are. You can either choose to suffer for doing good or you can give in and recognize that God is not commending your activity. Friends, make no mistake, you will suffer for doing good, though. When the boss asks you to do something that is immoral and you refuse it, you will suffer. And you may lose out. But in the end, there's one judge, there's one boss, the great boss, who will ultimately be pleased. And that is our Heavenly Father. Now, Peter is looking back. He's looking back at verses 18 to 20. And he's looking back on all that he has written about patient endurance in in the midst of unjust suffering. And he is telling his readers that this is the life that God commends. This is the life that God is pleased with. And now he wants to instill it deep in our hearts. So notice what he says in verse 21. He uses some radical terminology here. He says, now, for to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. For to this you were called. That word is not taken lightly in the Scriptures. When you see the word called, you can expect that this is a duty. One of the foundational purposes of a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, when people think about calling in life, They inevitably think about their strengths, don't they? When we think of calling, we think of things that we're good at, our skill set, our gifts, our talents, what we can accomplish on the athletic field or in the business world or, or wherever we might be as a student. Some are called to, to be a doctor. Some are called to be an athlete. When was the last time You heard someone say, I'm called to suffer. When was the last time you heard someone say, I'm called to do good and inevitably suffer for it? When was the last time you heard someone say, I'm called to patiently endure adversity, punishment, and hardship, all of which I do not deserve? I, uh, I saw a, a cartoon the other day. I had to put it up here. This is good stuff. This is Jesus talking to His disciples. It says, The winner of the disciple will get to give up all earthly possessions and follow me through all levels of hardship. Some of you get that. Yeah. Kind of like a reality show, you know. If you want to win the disciple, here's what you got to do. Does that look like a fun game to play? No. It, it goes against our sinful human nature, doesn't it? We look at that and we think, wow, sounds like a great calling, Lord. Sign me up. We don't think of our calling 
as patiently enduring unjust suffering. Yet Peter says, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. This is your calling. And why do we embrace this? Two reasons. I want to make it very clear. There are two reasons why we embrace this calling. Peter says, one, it's commendable before God. This is the right thing to do. This is what God gives praise for. It is commendable when you do this. And two, Jesus lived this life calling for us. Jesus lived this life calling for us, Peter says. Because Christ also suffered for us. That is to say, for our benefit. We embrace this calling because it's the kind of life that God commends, that He is pleased with, and because it's the one that our Lord shows. And in the verses that follow, Peter now, he's coming to the crescendo, if you will. He's coming to the climax of his message. And he is saying that now I want you to see this Jesus. I want you to see this One who He was and what He has accomplished by dying, suffering for you. Notice verse 22. He says this, Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, innocent, who when He was reviled did not revile in return, when He suffered, He did not threaten, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously. You know, what we see here, uh, those of you who know your Bibles, you might recognize that Peter here is using terminology that was spoken of hundreds of years before Peter wrote this. I want you to see, in just a moment, a verse, a few verses from the prophet of Isaiah who wrote 700 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. 700 years prior. This is what he wrote about Jesus the Messiah. Take a look. It says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth, nor was any deceit in His mouth. Prophesied 700 years before the coming of Christ. Peter here is reflecting on those great prophetic words from Isaiah. He's meditating on those. And he's saying, yes, this Jesus was one who was innocent and perfect, no deceit, and yet suffered unjustly. Jesus didn't retaliate against those who crucified him. He could have. He could have. With a word, Jesus had the power to vanquish those who mocked and scourged him. Yet when he was reviled, Peter says, and Isaiah says, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Instead, this is what Jesus said. Look at Luke 23. It says, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Jesus. And the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. patiently enduring unjust suffering. No, instead of retaliation, Peter says, Jesus committed Himself to Him who judges righteously. 
committed himself to the Heavenly Father, knowing full well that the time of judgment of the world had not yet come. Verse 24, Jesus, who Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that is the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Here again, Peter is recounting, bringing back the words Isaiah the prophet spoke of 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. Look what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 4-5. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Friends, if this detail, if this detail in the Scriptures does not demonstrate the veracity of the Bible, I'm not sure what else could. When we read this book that you have in your hand, when you read the Word of God, you are reading a book that is reliable and authentic. A message that was inspired by the Spirit of God. And thus, a man 700 years before Jesus showed up could write what he did in Isaiah 53. Friends, this is no accident. This is no coincidence. We have a a testimony about Jesus Christ in the Bible that is sure. A testimony about a Savior. Jesus, the One who offers new life to all who believe in Him for it. Peter says, Jesus bore our sins in His body on the tree. In so doing, He conquered sin and death. I want you to see an illustration of this. It's on your handout. It's a simple illustration. But it demonstrates what the cross accomplished. I want you to know very clearly, this is what the cross accomplished. On the one hand, we had mankind in sin. Separated eternally from God. There was no way that man could receive reconciliation, redemption. There was no way that man could return to God without Jesus Christ coming, paying the price for our sin by His blood on the cross and rising again, demonstrating that He was in fact the Savior of the world. The cross, friends, is the only way that you and I can get to God. The Old Testament says that there cannot be remission of sins without the shedding of blood. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God. He shed His blood so that the barrier of sin and death could be done away with. There's a new path. A pathway has been made back to God. And you walk on it over the cross of Christ. Christ's work on the cross has become the bridge between man and God. By His stripes, we have the opportunity for healing, Peter says. It was by means of the unjust punishment of the perfect Son of God, Jesus, that we have the opportunity for healing. Now, Peter is writing to a Christian audience. He's writing to those who have already believed in Jesus for salvation. But I ask you this today on Easter Sunday. Have you been healed? Have you been spiritually and eternally healed by the Lord Jesus Christ? 
We often, uh, you know, our world asks the question, how can we be saved? How can I be saved? It's a great question because some people answer it by saying, hey, go make money. You make money in life, you'll be happy. You won't have to worry about a thing. Okay, there's an answer. Not a great one in my mind, but there is an answer. For others, they just fill their life with entertainment, maybe sex, drugs, drinking, long day, let's just drink over the weekend. Hey, that's, that's deliverance. Boy, that's the good life. The Bible says no, that, that's not the good life. That's the life that ends in misery. At the end of the day, nothing saves but our Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. That's how you get saved. On Easter Sunday, if you are looking today to become a Christian, I tell you very plainly, Believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and you will forever be in the presence of God after this life is over. The time is now, friends. The time is now. But Christ has not only accomplished our eternal salvation by His sacrifice. Peter says there's so much more. There's so much more than even that. He says we, he, what He has also done is He has allowed us to imitate this amazing and radical new approach to life. Jesus has given us a new lifestyle. Notice what He says at the end of verse 24. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Those of you who are believers, you have positionally died to sins. Jesus has paid the price. Sin is no longer the barrier between you and God. You have the Spirit of God within you right now. You who believe. Who is working in you and through you to make you more like Jesus. You're not doing it on your own. In fact, you cannot become holy by your own merit, by your own effort. It is only by relying on the Spirit of God within you that you become a person of righteousness. And Peter says, this is what you've been appointed to. This is what you've been called to do. So live like who you are. Live like who you are, Peter says. He says, remember what you were like, verse 25. You were like sheep going astray. That was your former life, Peter says. But now you've returned to the shepherd the overseer of your souls. Peter says, in the former days, you were inclined, you were not inclined, not inclined to endure suffering for doing good. You were not inclined to a policy of non-retaliation. When you were threatened, he says, you would readily like to threaten in return. When you were reviled in the former days, Peter says, of course, it was your natural tendency to revile in return. But Peter says, now you've got a higher calling. Since coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, things are changing, Peter says. Since believing in Jesus, things are changing in your life. God's Spirit is working on you, and you are learning what it means to suffer unjustly 
as your Savior suffered unjustly. They had returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. What Peter has told us today must become our life pattern. Our calling. What is your calling? My calling is to patiently endure unjust suffering. Whether that's in the business world. Whether that's in my marriage. Whether people are saying things about me that are untrue. Whatever the case may be, Peter says, you are called to suffer unjustly and to patiently endure it. That is commendable. It is commendable. It is praiseworthy. It is precisely what Jesus Christ would do. People, we're we're called to a radically different lifestyle. A turn-the-other-cheek kind of lifestyle. That is not to say that we let people stomp all over us. That is not what I'm suggesting. If someone is saying something wrong about us, surely we should confront them about it. But Peter says, it's your attitude. It's how you approach these kinds of things. Are you approaching it with a grace-filled attitude? One that recognizes that whatever the case may be, I will take this suffering patiently. Is that your attitude? That was the attitude of Jesus Christ, who suffered, died, and rose again. I have two things to say to us today. I have one word of uh, advice for the Christian and one for for those of you who do not believe as of yet. To you who are Christians, I say very clearly, your calling in life is to become more like Jesus Christ. That is your calling. Jesus who patiently endured unjust suffering. Matthew 5.44, this is what Jesus says. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Friends, that is resurrection living. Sure, the resurrection has implications for us in eternity. But you, know, you want to know what the resurrection life looks like today? It looks like what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Receiving patiently unjust suffering, knowing that that's what your Lord and Savior went through. Become more like Jesus, Christian. That's your calling. To the seeker, to you who don't know Jesus Christ yet, I want to say very clearly, Jesus suffered and died to heal you from a life of sin and death. He did it for you, for your benefit. I urge you, believe in Him for salvation. That is so critical. That is the greatest, the greatest thing you can do in this life is to recognize that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Friends, Christ suffered for us. Not only did He suffer for us that we might have everlasting life, but He suffered for us that we might imitate His life right now. This Easter Sunday, we think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think of Him being raised to life, knowing that we will one day be raised up, appointed to the everlasting Kingdom of God. What a glorious truth that is. Yet, I want to urge you very clearly, don't wait for that day. Don't sit back. Waste your life waiting for that day. 
That day comes now. It comes in how you approach your life right now. Are you going to be a person of grace? Are you going to be one who patiently endures unjust suffering, imitating the example of the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, let us follow in our Savior's steps. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, this Easter Sunday, we praise You for the resurrection of Your Son. But Father, we soberly remember His suffering and His death. Father, we soberly remember what He endured for our benefit. Father, we now are the beneficiaries of the possibility of everlasting life with You because of Jesus' suffering and death. We now are the beneficiaries of watching Jesus' life And imitating His example. God, when we think of the One who has most radically altered our life, our minds are drawn to Your Son, Jesus. I pray, Father, that His life example would be exemplified in all of us. That we would not waste our lives waiting simply for eternity. But that we would act now in imitation of Your Son, who is risen. Father, thank You so much for this great and glorious truth. In Jesus' name, Amen.